0: Coming to you this hour, we have couple therapy pioneer, Michelle Weiner Davis. You've probably heard that name. You've certainly heard of her groundbreaking divorce busting concept, but you maybe haven't heard about the person behind the model, and that's what I love on the Pioneer series. We get to do a deep dive more than the technique, more than the specific interventions from the model, we get to learn about the person of therapist. And Michelle is going to share things today, uh, especially about her own struggles that have made her a better therapist, a better spouse, uh, a better parent that she's never shared in any other interview before. Michelle Weiner Davis is an internationally renowned relationship expert, best-selling author, professional speaker who specializes in helping people change their lives and improve important relationships. She's really among the first in our field to courageously speak out about the pitfalls of unnecessary divorce. She's been active in spearheading the now popular movement urging couples to make their marriages work and keep their families together. She is the author of seven books. Of course, what put her on the map, as I mentioned, Divorce Busting, There is the Sex Starved Marriage, a couple's guide to boosting their marriage and libido. She is the director of the Divorce Busting Center, has offices in Boulder, Colorado, and Woodstock, Illinois. In addition to her private practice, Michelle is a highly acclaimed and sought-after speaker. Known for her life-transforming, energetic, and entertaining keynote addresses, she has um, keynoted AMFT most recently, several years back, a tribute to... Steve DeShazer in Insu Berg when AMFT was in Milwaukee. She ranks among the top presenters at national conferences and you can find out everything else you need to know at divorcebusting.com. We will be back after the interview to tell you about a lot of exciting things coming up in the world of AAMFT. The first question I always ask Michelle is your kind of origin story, what got you interested in uh, couples or families or systemic therapy to start with?
1: Well, I'd say that there are two aspects to that, Eli. First of all, I'm fairly certain that being a therapist is in my DNA uh, because I have a family filled with therapists. My mother was a therapist. I have an aunt and uncle, a cousin, and those who aren't uh, psychotherapists are all in the healthcare fields, you know, occupational therapists, physical therapist, and so forth, so I don't think I had a chance to be anything but, actually, but the truth is there's a, probably a, a deeper story about how I actually became interested in doing couples therapy, and I'm happy to share that oh, with I'd you. L-
0: I'd love to hear it. So you start wherever it started. Sounds like in your family of origin.
1: Yeah, you know, by the way, when I do seminars for therapists, I always... Or I often start by asking people whether they chose their career by throwing a dart or is there a more personal reason, you know, that they're doing what they're doing. And I would say for most people there clearly is, and for me that's certainly true. Um, I My my family, I, I have immigrants for parents, and when, you you know, very often when you have immigrants for parents, they came over with a lot of relatives and your your life uh, as a child revolves around family time. You, you know, I had relatives living <clears throat> within a few block radius, and we spent every holiday, every weekend, uh, sometimes during the week having meals together. In, and
0: geographically, where are we now? New York. We New are York.
1: in New York, yeah. yeah. And um, I have to say that I... Uh, Some of my very fondest memories in my life were my childhood, because of that family orientation. And um, my my parents adored me, I feel very blessed about that, I have two brothers who I really adore. Um, My parents never fought, so I will never be somebody who will be going to a therapist's office complaining about my early childhood, it's just not going to happen. Until one day, one fateful day, I was about 16 years old, my mom called us all in for an impromptu family gathering, which was not the norm in my family, and my two brothers, myself, and my father and my mom, and my mom announced that for 23 years of marriage, she had been unhappy, and she had gone to a therapist for three years, and after three years of working with the therapist, the therapist helped her to make the decision that she really did need to get a divorce and go
0: find herself.
1: And I often say, now I would like to go find that therapist.
0: Um, Obviously someone that uh, was maybe not systemic or didn't expand the system to try to include your your father at the time so you were this hit you like a ton of bricks because you had this idyllic childhood so you're one of these kids that didn't see it coming so and this is right as you were getting ready to launch right a year or so before you ready to graduate high school
1: not even I was a senior in high school and so my little cozy nest completely unexpectedly fell apart with the words my mother used Eli and I can remember what they were There comes a time in everyone's life where you just have to throw in the towel. And to say that I was devastated is really an understatement. And I I tell people that at that moment, what I understood was that my parents' marriage would fall apart because that's what getting a divorce means. But I did not understand because I didn't have the wisdom or the developmental Uh, sophistication to yet really appreciate that the ways in which the insidious ways in which my entire family would then fall apart because what was unbeknownst to me being a kid was that my mother was really the hub of the family wheel and she organized to a great extent those family gatherings and when she decided to get a divorce Um, she resigned from that position and no one else stepped up to the plate to take over. And it, you know, in so many ways that, that closeness, that connection, that sense of uh, security um, and that love just really shifted in in and
0: dissipated. I am curious because that is a powerful story, especially what we'll get to later in our talk, as far as what you're known for, as far as, uh, couples therapy for one, taking one to tango. So obviously that influenced you not only professionally, but as a young woman, how did that change your relationship with your mother, who you had kind of idealized and your father for that matter as a, as an emerging adult?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. So my mom and I, despite her, uh, decision to divorce were kind of joined at the hip. I, my mother was an incredibly loving, nurturing person and, um, you know, it, I, you know I, I have to say it, it didn't at all impact on my love for her, but I also must say that there were many, many times over the course of our long relationship where we had uh, debates about what she might have been able to do differently. And to her credit, um, despite... What the, you know, the ways in which her life changed after the divorce. She was always my biggest fan in my mission to help others avoid that same fate. So she was happy with her new life, yet incredibly appreciative of the choices that I was making in my career. So
0: and let's talk about yeah. your career and then how you went from that into um, what you would become. So, you know, everybody has a story of their early educational experiences or what turned them on to family therapy. So take us, uh, uh, because I I don't know what type of, uh, what kind of theoretical orientation or modality your mom uh, practiced, but clearly you are synonymous with uh, MFT, specifically couples therapy, specifically your own outgrowth of solution focused therapy. So, I want to hear about how you became kind of professionalized into the MFT world.
1: Okay. You know, it was a gradual process because I think growing up in New York, and, uh, and actually my father's even from Vienna, I inherited psychoanalytic genes. Um, and so, the first time I think that I was exposed to a different way of thinking was when I went to Grinnell College, which is in Grinnell, Iowa of all places, and they had a small psychology program um, that I was part of, but they were very behaviorally oriented. And it challenged a lot of my uh, inherent beliefs at the time. I mean, for one thing, rather than look within the individual for pathology or the reasons that people are thinking or feeling the way that they were, this behavioral approach foisted me into thinking about what's going on currently in people's lives? What are the current reinforcers in the environment? And that was like a sort of a shocking way to think about things, as well as um, I always had this belief that unless you deal with underlying feelings and that you gain insight, that lasting change was not possible. And in fact, if you did that, clearly symptom substitution Uh, would happen so that the the problems would pop up in people's lives in other areas. But I learned at Grinnell that there was not a shred of evidence to support this way of thinking. Um, So that kind of started me thinking more in terms of what's going on in people's current situation. And I decided to go and get an MSW. And my first job after my MSW was as a school social worker. And what I felt so strongly at the time was that even though my my primary responsibility was working with the kids and uh, doing activities around values, clarification, things that were going on in the classroom, um, in a way it wasn't making an impact because no matter what I was doing, no matter how great the work I was doing with the kid, they went home. And I didn't have much contact with the family because that really wasn't supported back then. I knew I had to work with families. And for the next nine years or so, I worked at a small social service agency where I began doing family therapy. But being um, very much a person who likes to be helpful and be successful, it became pretty clear to me, that whatever I had learned in graduate school wasn't particularly helpful. I learned a lot about theory, I learned nothing in terms of, I shouldn't say nothing, I learned very little in terms of pragmatic, hands-on, what do you actually do with people when you're sitting in the room? And so one of the things that I did back then is I hired a, uh, a supervisor of my clinical work outside the agency and thank God I did, because she said, I have a book I want you to read. And that book was Uncommon Therapy by Jay Haley. Yeah, wonderful uh, <laughs>
0: book of stories. Uh, and you can read that book. I, I often think it's one of the first ones I read, too, uh, almost two decades ago and I started my career in a sense that you could he was such a good writer that you could read and, and it would uh, you could read through the pages and you could see a session would come alive and, and what a story would be. But that, that was a game changer for many, many young therapists at the time.
1: And, and anyone listening to this, I highly recommend that you read this book. Um, for me, Eli, what happened was I realized that there was just such a different way of thinking about problem solving. And it was a way that I didn't quite grasp. And that intrigued me. And at the same time, this supervisor that I hired suggested that I go uh, to this um, place in Milwaukee called the Brie Family Therapy Center because she knew that they were practicing a therapy model that was very much based on Milton Erickson's work. And so I did.
0: What year are we in now, Michelle? So this
1: is 1982,
0: Yes, right after the kind of golden age of strategic and Steve DeShazer and Insuberg, uh, who obviously have greatly influenced your career, set up shop in Milwaukee. So, which in the, uh, the solution focused model, obviously, Steve spent time at MRI. So, um, you were that was a kind of a natural follow up to what you had read in Uncommon Therapy and your experience with the supervisor. Uh, where were you in New York at the time? So you went from New-
1: no, no. I had I was living in the Midwest. I was living in Illinois. So Milwaukee was about an hour and a half drive for me. I drove up there, and they uh, encouraged me that that first day that I was visiting to sit behind the the one way mirror and I watched a case where they were there was a couple an elderly couple and the complaint was that the man was experiencing bruxism and for those of you who don't know what that is it's when someone grinds their teeth at night and so what does anybody think when you hear about that diagnosis you at least i did i was thinking this is about stress they're clearly going to be talking about you know, what are the stressors in this couple's lives and this man's life? But they did none of that. Instead, at the end of the session, Steve asked them to do an experiment. And the experiment was that they go home and that night, and for the nights in between that session and the next, that they would switch the sides of the bed that they slept on. And I'm sitting back there thinking, what in the world is going on here? And sure enough, I went for the follow-up session. The couple came back reporting that this man had absolutely no problems with bruxism. And I did not understand it, I was intrigued by it, but I think the mere fact that I was clueless was enough to get me to sign up on the spot uh, for their nine-month, training program. Which so that was
0: literally your first experience on day one, and it, it hooked you. Wow.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And so for the next nine months, um, I trained with Steve De- DeShazer. And I I always tell people, you wouldn't have wanted to know me back then, because I wasn't studying the that then current model of solution-focused therapy. I became it. You know, I... I lived and breathed it. I could think and talk about nothing else. I was so incredibly excited because it just shifted my thinking about so many things
0: clinically and so many things in life. A training program like that is so rich too. it's probably your first exposure to live supervision in that way, which accelerates the learning process so that must have been like a whole new world for you and uh, just immersing yourself in that. And that, at that time, um, before shifting to couples, you were doing a lot of family work. It sounds like too. I was doing family work. And,
1: um, I think what was so incredibly, um, wonderful for me. And I, and I talk to people sometimes when they get out of graduate school is they don't have a clear framework of what you do when you close the door, what you say and how you respond to people. And, all of a sudden, I was learning about um, a structure that was much, more, much less interested in analyzing the cause of problems and much more interested in analyzing the cause of solutions. It wasn't just about you know, using my therapist mantra, asking people how they felt about something. It was truly about helping people create change And I, what I also loved about it, true to the Ericksonian um, philosophy, that it was so focused on people's resources, Um, it was very goal and future oriented, as as opposed to being focused on the past. It just resonated with every cell in my body.
0: Yeah, I, you know, from my um, experience watching you over the years and hearing you present, you're a very positive person. So I think. Uh, there's lots of reasons young clinicians like solution-focused, uh, and part of it is because it is built in health and strength and tapping in to positivity, but that was uh, certainly uh, a welcome change for you. Other than Steve DeShazer, talk about some of your biggest influences at that part of your career as you started to learn uh, about... MFT and systemic therapy?
1: Well, I, I still have to linger there a little bit longer because after my uh, training with Steve for nine months, and I really do have to give a plug not only for Steve but for the idea of mentorship. Um, I don't, I'm convinced that I would not be talking to you today if, were it not for the fact that Steve so generously decided to be my mentor, and I I think that is just a wonderful role that people can play in our field. Um, After the training with him, I became part of their staff, and I did research with a fellow named Wally Gingrich, so it was Steve, Wally, and myself, and we were really taking a look at what, when therapy is successful, what are the contributing factors to successful therapeutic outcome. And what we did was one person would work with a couple or a family and the other people, the two others would, we coded uh, the transcripts of the session and each time a client reported change in the session, we would, in a sense, uh, rewind and take a look at what it was that the therapist was doing or saying that elicited uh, either a new way of thinking about things or statements about change, and it, it was an it was an incredibly fascinating uh, process, which I think led to a clearer uh, definition of the solution focused model that most people learn about today.
0: Yes, and it's interesting because talking to multiple model developers now on this podcast, the. The idea that their clients taught them the model or the idea that reviewing their tape uh, helped them refine their ideas and principles and techniques. So It was a very organic process and what a amazing time. I think many people listen to this podcast, they will either be students or they are in their own practice where... They have to see so many clients, and the time to talk and discuss a case and to break it down and to look at it is often a lost art. But what a a clinically rich time for you. That must have been uh, amazing.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, there was another, um, there was (laughs) something that really contributed in a very big way to my interest in working with couples and, in particular, helping them avoid unnecessary divorce that stemmed from my stay in Milwaukee. Um, There was one day when I was behind the one-way mirror and I was watching a more experienced um, solution-focused therapist work uh, with a couple and they were having some struggles, some pretty kind of uh, stereotypical kinds of struggles. And at first the therapist was trying to help them uncover some solutions they perhaps had not yet thought about. But then when it seemed to hit a dead end, the therapist shifted the conversation to the inevitability of divorce. And I remember sitting behind the one-way mirror thinking, I wouldn't have asked that question. There were many other avenues I thought were uh, more appropriate in terms of uh, being able to provide additional solutions. But because I was a rookie therapist, I was a little intimidated to call in and make a suggestion. Instead, I had, in addition to working at the social service agency, I had my own small private practice. And I decided to go home and use my own uh, couples in my private practices, my guinea pigs. And what I discovered over time was that the more I believed that there were solutions that were yet to be uncovered and continued asking what-if kinds of questions, the more solutions showed up. And the more they showed up, the more I became a psychotic optimist that you know this problem can be solved. And so one of the things that got me thinking about was In Milwaukee, the therapist I was watching was more experienced than I, and I was using the same model. Why is it that I was getting a different outcome? And at the time, what I realized is that the person I was watching was happily married in in either their second or third marriage, and I was in my first. And it started me thinking about the fact that when you go to a therapist What you really get is much more than the clinical orientation of the therapist. What you get is the person behind the therapy model, the person who comes complete with values and assumptions and expectations that stem from the therapist's own personal life. And this is kind of a big deal because You know, so often when people are needing help, like my mother who needed help, um, they often put more effort into figuring out what kind of new car to get than who's the person you're actually going to. What do they believe in? What is their stance? And so that's become a really important issue to me um, that I think all therapists should be aware of and certainly the general public.
0: I mean, we could have a hour just talking about that in the sense that the self of the therapist and you know in some disciplines you mentioned kind of psychoanalytic uh, roots where the therapy should be value-free and you should just be this blank slate that's really impossible so for you to know yourself and your and your values and certainly the treatment that is delivered is important but uh, those of us like me have devoted their career to common factors and studying therapist variables. who delivers the treatment is uh, we think uh, just as important if not more important than the actual treatment absolutely certainly yes someone sees you present or talk your your positivity your confidence it, it exudes through so um, solution focused, people like it because there's these series of techniques, question based. You don't have to be a uh, skilled or have lots of years under your belt to start asking miracle questions and exceptions questions. So talk about in your in your own kind of development how you how you marry the two, the 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 model the the interventions from the model versus yourself a therapist. It's, it's a great uh, thing that we always talk about uh, with young professionals. And I always ask people on the podcast, the, the importance of who's delivering the treatment versus the actual treatment itself.
1: So I think, you know, you started out before by asking me other influences and I think, um, you know, rather, and this is an answer to your question. You'll see them. It's a kind of a roundabout way to get there. But what a lot of the people who started influencing my thinking were solution-oriented people who were, in a sense, less rigid than the kind of structure I was just talking about. In other words, uh, you know, if you're a student of piano, for example, by this point I knew the notes and now I could play with feeling. Um, so one of the first in the cast of characters to come along in my life who had an impact on me was Bill And I know lots of people who are listening will be familiar with his work. Um, he invited me to write a book with him, um, which we did, and it's called In Search of Solutions A New Direction in Psychotherapy, which was actually taking some of what I think the, the key effective principles of solution-oriented thinking and making it, in a sense, less structured. And because it is a bit less structured, because... What you're doing is agreeing to incorporate these elements, but doing it in a way that's more spontaneous, more like jazz. And, um, you know, I, I, it's so important to me. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm really wanting to talk a lot about um, bringing yourself to the process, and, but I think I'm gonna jump ahead if I do, but I, I guess that's, that's okay. Let's
0: just do it, it's fine, yeah.
1: Okay. All right. Well, you know, I you were kind enough, Eli, to send me a list of potential questions, and one, one of your very last questions is about, um, you know, what's something that I might want to talk about that people wouldn't necessarily know through articles or books or so forth. Um, certainly, you know, I've written eight books, and I've written lots of articles, and people m- may be familiar with my work through that, but what people don't know is that a number of years ago, I went through a bout of pretty severe depression. And as a result, I mean, there was a lot of stress in my life um, and it was just like sort of one thing too many. And all of a sudden, although I had never been depressed in my life, um, it, everybody has an Achilles heel, so I've learned. And because it was so uh, devastating and so scary, um, in, in addition to feeling incredibly depressed, I, I had the wonderful experience of having generalized anxiety as well, um, which I know often go hand in hand. But it, 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 And it lasted for quite a while, but the blessing in what happened to me is that Um, Because I was so eager to free myself from that mental state, I was on the other side of the coffee table in the therapy room and had had the opportunity to experience what it's like to be a client and learned so much from that experience. Um, I I need to just share this one story um, because it, it really now has completely influenced my work, with at, at, not only with clients, but anyone who, uh, who crosses my path in life. Uh, I was so devastated and so scared about how I was feeling. I, a friend suggested that I go see a psychiatrist because perhaps I needed medication. And that was not my first choice, but I did do it, and... The psychiatrist was wonderfully reassuring in my first session and said, I don't believe you need medication, I just think you need uh, six to 12 sessions of CBT and you'll be fine. And I cannot tell you, Eli, what that did. The entire cloud lifted. It instilled hope, I knew I was gonna be okay. In fact, I went home and had the first week of depression and anxiety, I had a depression anxiety-free week. I was ecstatic, and I went back, I couldn't wait to report to the psychiatrist what had happened, and when I did, here's what he said. He said, I'm glad you're feeling better, but I have to tell you that it's probably not gonna last, and besides, you need to come to therapy to figure out why you got depressed in the first place, because not everybody's susceptible to that, you know. And what I can tell you is at in that moment, the bottom dropped out. And I went back into a very, very dark place. And my search for solutions after that point um, brought me to the doorstep of you you name it, and I was in that kind of therapy looking for solutions. And I can tell you that Um, That, and by the way, multiple sorts of um, medications, antidepressant medications, which I can tell you for me did not work at all. And in fact, I would also tell you that most of the uh, theoretical orientations, top-down, bottom-up, you name it, um, were not particularly helpful, but there were certain things that stood out that completely transformed the way I was feeling, and here's what they were. The therapy experiences that really made a difference had everything to do with two components. One is the relationship, the the kindness, the person, personable um, connection that I the therapeutic felt. Therapeutic alliance, yes. Exactly. And you know, but that's such a theoretical term. I don't really know unless you're, you're in this kind of state, what it actually feels like. And I'll I'll give you a quick example. Um, I know a lot of people in the field will be familiar with Michael Yapko's work on depression. And fortunately for me, Michael Yapko was a good friend, is a good friend, and I called him to let him know some of the difficulties that I was having. And Michael talked to me for an hour. um, And at the end of that hour, he said to me, Michelle, get out your calendar. I want to talk to you next week. I said, okay. And he did the same thing at the end of that next week's appointment. And he actually, he did the same thing for an entire year. And somewhere in the middle of that, I said to him, Michael, I'm not going to have these appointments with you unless you let me pay you. Otherwise, we need to stop. And he said, Michelle, you're not going to pay me and we're not stopping. And I, that, you know that reaching out um, was, I think, probably one of the most powerful healing factors, because I felt a caring that goes beyond the therapeutic relationship. And similarly, I had another therapist here in the Boulder area where I live, who um, actually she wouldn't even call herself a therapist. She she had a she certainly had an MSW, but she was. Uh, really a, more of a Buddhist therapist and she tried so hard to get me to meditate and I always say I was a yes but Buddhist because I, I just wouldn't bring myself to do it but what she did do this was a woman who every time I walked through the door I could sense how happy she was to see me she was someone who would check in on me in between sessions she was someone who would send me a poem because it reminded her of me um, I felt her for lack of a better term, I felt her love. I really felt her love. And one of the things this has done for me, and I know I've heard you say, Eli, that you could tell that I'm, you know, warm and hopeful, and, um, and I was all those things prior to this happening, but I have taken it to another level. So when I work with people, they can feel my intense laser focus when, when I'm with them. They can feel my warmth when I work with clients who have um, when, for example they're dealing with infidelity most of my clients are and they're feeling such despair they can't believe they'll ever feel okay again one of the things that I have learned in my own process is wanting to know wanting to hear you're going to be okay this is going to pass and so I without hesitation share with people i know you don't believe me now but the way you're feeling will be a thing of the past you're going to look back at this process someday and say that was really tough but i've learned so much and i'm feeling so much better furthermore i i do check in on people in between sessions um, i am happy to send them emails again intersession i really want people to know that i care about them More than them, they're just being my two p.m. appointment. So it's the whole idea of building positive expectation, and also I am I'm completely comfortable, and I I share this idea with people when I with therapists when I do training these days, the importance of bringing yourself to the process, and being able to self-disclose in ways that are helpful to your clients.
0: Okay. Well, that is an amazing story. Now I don't, you know, I've listened to you talk a lot, but I had no idea that you had, uh, undergone your own therapy, much less with, uh, someone who's certainly well known in the field, Michael Yapko. But I always like to tell therapists in training, I don't know why we don't normalize this more. One could say we should even require it as training programs to get experience on the other side of the couch, so to speak. I mean, what an amazing experience. I know I early in my, um, career to get that experience. And when I've had, uh, you know, issues from here to here, uh, from time to time in my own, you know, almost 20 year career, I've, I've gone to see both a individual and a couple's therapist. So I, I think it's, it's a wonderful thing. Why do you think we don't normalize that more, Michelle?
1: You mean for people getting their own therapy? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, I, I thought you were going to say I think it should be mandatory that everybody gets depressed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I I think people should know what it feels like to be on the other side of the room. I, I learned so much, and by the way, I learned so much about having gone through dark nights of, of the soul. I mean, you know, some people do outward bound experiences where, and they feel that they can do anything in life and I did an inward bound experience and it just, it, it totally changed my life. And furthermore, I feel as if um, I'm, I'm so much more able to be present with people's pain of any sort. Um, because of having been there so yeah on both counts Uh, it's so is back to your common factors it's for me it is so not about the therapy model because if I listed for you the kinds of theoretical orientations I experienced during this journey it's almost it's almost funny because of of that but it wasn't the theoretical orientation it truly truly was the
0: person I mean, you're making my day because it's so refreshing. Almost every model developer that I have talked to that I have great respect for will uh, just inherently, because it's what they know, they will go to the techniques of their models. But uh, as the, my late great mentor, Doug Sprinkle, used to say, the alliance is a a necessary but not sufficient, And it, meaning if that's all you have, yeah. it's not enough. But it is. Without it, you can't do good work. So Absolutely. Uh, I love hearing that also. All of those different modalities and experiences. So, how? Let's let's catch us up to um, really what impacted um, you know not only I, and I don't know where your personal therapy was in in the timeline of obviously most people are going to know you. You've written eight books, but what really I think what put you you know nationally on the map with the general public was obviously divorce busting. And what I love about that is that it takes these solution focused principles, updates them. Puts them in just uh, very easy to comprehend um, stories, and you, you tell a lot of good stories. And built into that, your own work is your own vulnerability and making mistakes. Making mistakes as a, a therapist, making mistakes as a spouse. You know, it's it's I think also what makes you very accessible and approachable. Uh, so I am I am curious uh, as far as your own therapy leading. To what you would do and have done in your career um, with divorce busting and your own special brand of, you know, helping people save their relationships?
1: Well, you know, I want to just take out a moment to give a plug to AAMFT because uh, this is is sort of the beginning of all of that. After I had written In Search of Solutions with Bill O'Hanlon, and it was such a Uh, sort of a a big hit in professional circles. I thought, who needs this information more than the general public, and who in particular, but couples who are struggling with relationship issues, and so um, there was a conference, an AAMFT conference out in California, I think it was like 89 or 90, um, and I wrote up a proposal to do a workshop that would apply all the solution-focused principles to couple work and I couldn't think of a title. And I remember sitting in my home office and I couldn't think of a title, couldn't think of a title, and all of a sudden, and this was around the Ghostbusters time, right, um, I thought, Divorcebusters, I got it, and the moment, Eli, that I thought of that title, I, all I can tell you was that I had this really strong feeling that this was going to become something. And so I, I got accepted. I did a workshop uh, in California. It was standing room only. Uh, I was written up in the LA Times. I was invited to a number of radio shows. And as a result of that, I was a few things. I got a, I got book proposal, I mean, book offers from Simon and & Schuster, and I was invited to be on television, and radio, and Oprah. I mean, it was like a whirlwind experience. Um, and I did, I wrote I, I wrote Divorce Busting, which got published in 1992, and I think it was because I was probably one of the first therapists saying, neutrality is impossible. And even if it were possible, it's not a good idea. We need to do something to help people avoid unnecessary divorce. And I always tell people that my position has never been one of proselytizing, saying divorce is bad or immoral. And certainly in some situations, it's absolutely necessary, but it became my experience over and over again that the vast number of times when people are considering divorce, they're experiencing problems that are solvable. Solvable with learn, looking at things in a different way and learning new skills. And you know, because that book was published and became a bestseller and the way media works, um, I became known as the divorce buster and quickly shifted from doing family therapy into specializing in in work with couples who were teetering on the brink of divorce, which has been my life's work ever since.
0: I mean, that's an amazing story. I never heard the origin of the name. You were literally just sitting there, and it was partly the catchy name, but then your ability, again, to connect with people and audiences when you got that opportunity. I think now coming kind of full circle, it is not lost on me that, Given your family of origin story that your ability to reach out to people on the brink and even people individually. So I think of what really that I gravitate towards your work and uh, young professionals that I train is this idea of what if I can't expand the system? I can't get the yeah. other partner there. So when I think of it takes one to tango or yes. couples therapy for one, that is amazing at a systemic application if you can be a couple therapist with one person in the room so I, I want you to talk about that and i want you to go full circle talk back about mom is that the is that the therapy that you wish mom would have had all those years ago when you were 16 years old? I mean, maybe you don't connect it, maybe you do.
1: Well, of course. I wanted to fix my mom, of course. I mean, it, I, I'll just, you know, start there. I, my mom eventually, you know, and by the way, I should tell you that my mom ended up having an amazing career. Um, She uh, was a Holocaust survivor without an education and yet became so well-known in in her own field. She became Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's right-hand person and, uh, you know, had a practice mostly in Europe. um, And she did just amazing work. But despite her incredible life, um, she many times said to me, had it— had help been available to her back when she was considering divorce or looking for solutions, she she wished that that had been the case. Keep in mind, this happened, you know, in in the early seventies, and there was a cultural revolution going
0: on. And yeah, death replacing, uh, I mean, divorce replacing death is the most common input.
1: Absolutely, in marriage for sure. and so you know, I I uh, I sort of have to understand that she was part of that um but clearly i I wish things had been different and it's so great that things are different now there are so many wonderful resources available to people if they're struggling and they want help to try to preserve their
0: relationships and their families that's amazing so she was so accomplished in in her line obviously you stayed very close to her And sounds like she was very proud of her daughter. What were those talks like uh, when you finally, you know, when you were on Oprah and you were uh, a bestseller list? What were those talks like in in that part of your relationship with your mom?
1: With my mom,
0: yeah, Uh, still your mom, or talk about work?
1: (laughs) No, my my mom. My mom had always, always, always been my very biggest fan. Um, You know, I, I talk about feeling blessed. I mean, I. Growing up with that feeling of unconditional love and someone whose eyes lit up when I walked in the room, uh, the fact that I was able to um, accomplish what I have was uh, a great joy to her. Um, So yeah, that that was always great. And this whole idea back to what you were talking about in terms of it takes one to tango, I'm a pragmatist. And I've noticed that in almost all relationships, and certainly in the clinical relationship, there's almost always one person who's more motivated than the other to work on issues. And so I didn't want that to slow me down. And I hear when I travel and do training, therapists saying that they they can't do couples therapy unless they have two people. I so wanna get them in training and brainwash them because every person, is a window into the system. And you know, I I have to give uh, the folks at MRI a lot of credit for this, um, really taking a look at um, the way in which problems are, uh, problems develop and how they're maintained, and it's by people's problem-solving efforts. The very thing people do to solve a problem often becomes a problem. And knowing this information, when you have a motivated person sitting in your room, finding out what their goals are, finding out what they say their spouses, the absent spouses, um, the reasons they're unhappy, the things they want changed in a relationship, and then helping the person sitting in your room identify what they're doing that's working and what they're doing that isn't working, and then being creative and coming up with a game plan to change that old, more of the same behavior that's actually making things worse. It's really simple. There are times I actually prefer just working with that one person. And that's just for you know relationship or couples therapy in general, but one of the things that I've done um, you know, and I've even you know, created an online training program for, is that even when things seem extremely dire, where a divorce has been filed for, they're legally separated, or there's a, a, a hot affair looming, um, or the, one spouse says, what part of I'm out of this marriage aren't you understanding? It's still not too late. And I've used this whole idea about helping people shift their more of the same behavior and call it the last resort technique where I train the person who desperately wants to save the marriage, their primary more of the same behavior has been pursuit and everyone knows whether clinically or in your own life that when you are being heavily pursued, the natural inclination is to withdraw. We all know that. If if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know that, go back to square one, right? And so my job has been to help that person who wants to save the marriage to figure out the specifics of quitting the pursuit and what they need to do instead. And I cannot tell you, that, or I should tell you that in the course of my career which has been very lengthy I would say that this technique the last resort technique is the one that I've heard most about in terms of emails and calls to my office thanking me for what seemed like a near impossible situation turning around so I, I, I really want people who listen who are listening to know that there is much that you can do to make changes in people's lives even if you just have one person in the system sitting in your room
0: and you can be a family therapist with one person in the room as long as you think systemically I think exactly and, and maybe maybe this is how you answer this next question I always ask people and you still you've you had great longevity but as listening to you this hour you're still as vital as ever you still do the work uh for the right reasons and you still are as passionate about it as ever what do you want uh thinking of these professional legacy, what do you want to be remembered for the most, Michelle?
1: Well, so I guess first of all, what I'd like to say, you know, it's stuff that we've been talking about is that I I really, um, you know, on my professional epitaph, uh, you know, I, I want people to think about the fact that when it wasn't popular, when it wasn't easy, that it was really important to me to take a strong stand for trying to work out the difficulties in marriage, keeping families together, and preventing unnecessary divorce. I also think it's really important to me that uh, my training has been thought of as, I know this is gonna sound funny, but theory light. Um, and not to say that I that theory hasn't influenced me, But certainly it, it has. But not to the it's been it's been very important to me that when people leave the training that i've offered that they actually have concrete hands on ideas of what to do and say when they work with clients and that it is um, coming from a personal place both in my training and my writing and um, that's that's really just been incredibly important to me there's and I guess there's one other thing and you know, if I could have, and I guess I'm, I'm working on it, sort of a, a second career, um, I, it's not just that I want people in marriages to love each other more. Um, I keep thinking about, and maybe you'll know, you know Leo Biscaglia? Uh, I Did,
0: do not. Tell okay. tell
1: us about Leo. So Leo Biscaglia was this Italian guy, loving guy, um, public speaker. And and actually, he was a professor. He taught a course on love. And his talks are so incredibly inspiring. He makes you laugh. He makes you cry. But mostly what you leave is with the feeling of a day of disconnection is a day wasted in your life. And with with my clients, I am no longer just focusing on helping them learn the skills they need to you know make to strengthen their marriages but I'm really helping them to take a look at their relationships you know with their parents and their siblings and their neighbors I am so um, bothered by if you google the word toxic in terms of the the books that are written about toxic relationships and this focus on dysfunction and pathology um, It's my my, um, ambition in terms of the rest of my life is to help people uh, shift their focus into other kinds of stories about people in their lives that that they once have loved. And to really take another look at what it means to have emotional cutoffs in your life, not just with your spouse, but all sorts of emotional cutoffs personally I don't think it's healthy for people and so um, you know in my career moving forward I'll I'll give you one short story I was working with a couple they were there about their relationship but it came up in our conversation um, this um, sort of challenging relationship that the woman let's call her Susie had with her mother who was, she was German, her mother was in Germany. And she goes, I don't understand. Her, Susie said, I don't understand why my mother is always fishing for compliments, always asking me you know, how I think she did on something. And it's so annoying, it pushes me away. And so I said to her, do you ever compliment your mother? She goes, no, not really, because I feel pressured. I said, do you ever tell your mother that you love her and that she's done a good job in something? She goes, no, not really. And I looked at her and I said, What time is it in Germany right now? Because we were in Colorado. Call your and mother. She, yeah, I said, You're gonna pick up the phone. I want you to call your mother. Now you might ask, what does this have to do with couples therapy? You know, it's it's it really is about feeling more at peace with yourself, feeling more love, feeling more connection. And it it doesn't matter where that lands but it's important that people focus on you know rebuilding broken relationships so yeah,
0: i think that's so true anything that could work in your intimate couple relationship should be able to work with other people you care about and a lot of these principles that you've written about like acting as if and you know, really the old adage, treat others the way you want to be treated. And it, it, it is really true. So I'm glad to see you. You know, I always think of you as a, a couple and family therapist, as you've highlighted this hour. Those are your roots. So it's nice to see you, you know, kind of broaden the frame just from the couple. But I got to ask one thing about the couple. One of the thing that makes you, I think, so engaging, it's your vulnerabilities you showed today and shared very personal stuff about your own therapy. That's also, your stories are just real. And you talk about your husband a lot. So I'm really curious what he thinks about being the source of some of your best material.
1: (laughs) I wish you were here now. You know, nowadays, my husband comes to all of my training because he's my uh, self-taught videographer and we're doing a lot of online stuff. So he's always there. And sometimes when I tell, and by the way, you should just know that my husband and I have been together since 1973, married since 1977. Um, That's a great run. It, it certainly is, and and I, I'm really proud of it because I can honestly say it's been very difficult. Um, all marriages have their ups and downs, as do ours. Um, we're we're different in so many ways. I'm as I said, I'm first generation American. His family came over on the Mayflower, and think about all the the values and philosophies that might stem from those different uh, origins and we deal with them and so I'm really proud to say that you know I walk the talk that I really do apply you know solution focused thinking to challenging times probably not as much as I should there are times when I tell stories uh, in workshops when my husband will roll his eyes around but um, you know, in the end, I, uh, I, I'm i just, I'm proud that I've been able to sustain a relationship over the long haul, uh, given the challenges.
0: Well, Michelle Wiener-Davis, what a, a wonderful story, and you are authentic in the real deal, uh, and again, I think that you have uh, taught us a lot today about just what good therapy is, not just good solution-focused therapy, and uh, that it's never kind of too late to kind of, when you're stuck, to help other people get unstuck, to work on yourself. Uh, I think that, um, you know, I'd love, I have all these ideas and uh, we'll get to suggestions for podcasts. And one that I've been playing around with is having a, a model developer, a master clinician, and their non-clinician spouse come on and talk about what that's <laughs> like. So, you, you and your husband would be ideal candidates. So maybe we can do that later. But I'm curious, uh, what do you want? Obviously, you, another thing that's made, uh, get your message out there. You make your materials very available, including kind of online and, you know, old school, go to Amazon, get a book. So please, in the end here, plug anything you want, uh, what's coming up, uh, if people want to know.
1: Well, maybe a a few things. One of the most recent uh, programs that I've created is for therapists, um, and it's about how to help couples heal from infidelity. I have done um, some keynote addresses where there have been thousands of therapists sitting in the audience, and I ask people how many people here, uh, when they were in graduate school, learned anything about helping couples heal from infidelity. And honestly, uh, in one group of 2,000 people, five hands went up. And yet, as we all know, infidelity is um, ubiquitous. And so if you're going to work with couples, it really isn't a, simply a matter of helping them develop better, relate, better communication skills. Infidelity is, I think, a unique um, challenge and that you do have to have sp- skills that are specific to help people. Helping people through that process, and I've created an online program for therapists to really walk couples um, to re- through rebuilding and healing and moving on with their lives. Um, and you know, if people uh, want to write to me, Michelle at DivorceBusting.com, I'm happy to send them a link to the program. Uh, as well as my book for the general public, but a lot of therapists are writing me and telling me that they're keeping it in stock in their office by the same name, Healing from Infidelity. Um, I've been pleased uh, regarding the response to that. And then um, every year I've been doing what now is a four-day training um, for people to come to Boulder, Colorado, which is a wonderful place just to be. Um, to learn what I've learned over the years um, about how to deal. You know, it's so interesting, couples therapy, when you have two people who want to work on the relationship, for me at this point is child's play, but what do you do when one person wants in and the other person either isn't so sure or definitely wants out? So to learn how to handle those situations as well as You know, the topic of my TEDx talk, the sex-starved marriage, how do you deal with couples who have a desire discrepancy, also healing from infidelity, Um, how do you work with one partner, uh, you know, in terms of doing It Takes One to Tango. So those are all topics that I cover in four days here in Boulder. So... That's what I'm excited about these days.
0: Outstanding. Thank you so much, and I really enjoyed this, and I know our listeners on the AAMFT podcast will as well.
1: Thank you, Eli. This is, you know, and I, um, in thinking about the the questions that you were going to ask, it gave me an opportunity to reflect on my career and also to reflect on the role that AAMFT has played from the get-go, first place that I presented, Um, all the way going full circle to receiving an award for Lifetime Achievement. And without this organization, again, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation.
0: Eli, back with you. That was another great interview in our Pioneer Series on the AAMFT podcast. Wow, I learned so much. Michelle is uh, extremely authentic. You know, when you're listening to this podcast, whether you're a young professional, a student, a preclinical fellow, you've been in the field a long time. Not only is there a lot of history um, that you can't really get in your textbooks when you're listening to model developers like Michelle's journey through the Brief Family Therapy Center in 1982, her work with Steve DeShazer and how that impacted her updated vision of solution-focused therapy applying it to couples developing divorce busting feels to the interview you understand how she got the name of divorce busting uh, based on ghostbusters uh, over 30 years ago now but you really can see the personal struggles that model developers have to deal with it it, it doesn't always come easy and i was so please she share with her battle of depression and what come, what came out of that not only um, her work with michael Yapko, but really her appreciation and understanding of what makes a difference the difference that makes a difference in systemic therapy and also psychotherapy if you ask me which are these common factors the person of the therapist she said is the most important and the alliance Uh, specifically the bond component that she had with YAPCO. I mean, I I feel like that um, techniques, models, they are certainly important. Uh, But what really makes therapy come alive are those factors she mentioned. I can't thank Michelle again. Enough for her candor. Please go to divorcebusting.com. Check that out. She is up to date with her technology. So, uh, distance is not a barrier. You can get a lot of her best materials and training whether you are a clinician or you are the general public. Someone's trying to save their marriage, the last resort technique. You can get that all at divorcebusting.com. Thank you Michelle Weiner Davis. Okay, on the podcast, a very exciting news. We are as this podcast drops less than a week away from AAMFT 19 in the great state of Texas, the great town of Austin. I will be there presenting with my colleague, Adrian Blow, on Sunday morning, September 1st, to close out the conference on these very same common factors that Michelle was speaking about. Uh, But before that, we're going to be recording lots of great podcasts. We're going to do our first ever live cast. And we'll have a treat for you. So if you're not able to travel to Austin, you can log in to amft on facebook at three o'clock central time four o'clock eastern time on saturday august 31st and catch the live cast of the aamft podcast as always we appreciate your feedback a lot of great feedback on our various platforms if you're an amft member you can go to the amft main page pull the tab a Down Under podcast and see archived our first seven months of podcasts great installments both topical content areas and these pioneering interviews but you can also find us where you find your favorite podcast I like Apple Podcasts, we've been getting a lot of great feedback there, it just takes a second if you could please leave us a star rating and give us some feedback it's very important in uh, establishing this podcast uh, among the leaders in other mental health podcasts. I really enjoy bringing it to you every time. Uh, the easiest way to get a hold of me is on Twitter. You can find me at Dr. Eli Live. You can also follow the AMFT, the handle, at the AMFT. You can also drop me a line at info at elicarum.com. K-A-R-A-M dot com. Until next time, my friends, stay systemic.